humans are pretty resilient people. There's a lot of things that humans can go without, can do without. You know, people do 40-day fasts. People run hundreds of miles. People can go without all kinds of things for all kinds of lengths of time, do all kinds of feats. But there's one thing that humans can't do without, and it's other humans. Humans need relationship with humans. It's integral into the DNA of who we are. There's a show, uh, you guys might have seen it. Have you guys ever seen the show called Alone? Yeah, yeah, okay. Amazon Prime. I'm actually sponsored by them, so be sure and go uh, click <laughs> click the link. Um, no, it's it's uh, this this basically the idea is they take 12 or 15 of like the best survival experts out there, uh, and they drop them all alone into somewhere in the wilderness, and they have to survive. And then whoever survives the longest without pushing the button for the boat to come get them or whatever wins the show. And so they get all these really grisly guys, um, basically like Bruce. Uh, if you just Bruce, raise your hand. Like just imagine Bruce. Like he could turn a toothpick into a log cabin kind of thing with his teeth, um, basically. Yeah, uh, and make a raft out of his back hair. No, that's, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> too far. I, you don't even have back hair. Okay. Uh, anyways, the, the show is, the, the, this, this, these guys are intense. And, and the funny thing is, is they actually, a lot of them do really well. You know, they survive well. They learn how to make fire and shelter and food and they get all their basic human needs. Um, and many of them, honestly, could probably live out there the rest of their lives. Uh, and, and, but what makes the show interesting is the title. It's not Survivor. It's Alone. These guys are stuck alone. There's nobody around. They're completely isolated. Nobody to talk to other than their own. They have to film themselves with the camera. And it really gets to them. I mean, we're talking like tough guys, tough gals that, that really could survive, but they just can't handle being alone. It freaks them out. They start losing it. And the reason they push the button, it's not because they can't survive, it's because they can't be alone. We weren't made to be alone. We're relational creatures. It was really sad. I was watching, uh, it was a news segment a month ago or so, and they were actually showing the difference in the, the health, um, just how much health has declined in the elderly since COVID started. They were showing um, before and after pictures, just you know, six months to a year of difference. And these, some of these elderly folks that are living in care facilities, their health has just gone down fast. And they were saying that the, 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 one of the main reasons they think is because they've been so isolated. They haven't seen their grandkids. They haven't seen their children. They haven't been home for Christmas. They haven't been home for Thanksgiving. And it's taken this massive toll uh, um, on their health. Guys, we were made to be with people. We just were. And you, it's, it's still uncertain exactly what the cost is gonna be uh, when this whole thing shakes out in, in terms of how isolated people have been. They're even learning, you know, my, my wife and I are learning as we're doing foster care, um, that, that, that babies that don't get personal human-to-human interaction um, by a certain time, babies that are neglected or, or don't get that face-to-face contact, they actually develop something called uh, reactive, it's, I wrote it really small, hold on, there it is, reactive attachment disorder, I wrote it like really, really tiny in my margin. Thank you, my wife. Uh, reactive attachment disorder, which literally means that they struggle, can struggle the rest of their life to overcome sit, uh, relational situations. They struggle to trust. They, they struggle to make eye contact. They just struggle all kinds of things. It's, it's integral to our human development that right away we have relationships because we were not made to be alone. You know, I spent most of my childhood life as, as a non-Christian chasing the same thing you chased when you were a kid, and um, that's relationship. It's acceptance. It's friendship. You know, when I was in high school, nothing, by the way, does more damage to your ability to have human relationships than high school kids. Uh, but when, when you're in high school, you really care about one thing, and it's your friends. I want my friends to accept me. I want my friends to like me. And you really spend your waking hours as a high schooler, typically, um, saying, how do, I, how do I become more popular? How do I become more accepted? So for me, as a high schooler, I lived a double life. I, I did whatever I needed to do to be accepted by my friends. So said what they wanted me to say, did what they wanted me to do. Um, and the funny thing was, is it just felt like no matter what I did, it was never enough, right? And, and I'll never forget my best friend, when I was a kid, when I was 15, I think, maybe 14, 15, I was coming home from work, my bike, my best friend lived next door, and he waved me over from the house after work. He's like, hey, come hang out. I'm like, great, that's all I wanna do, right? I'm in high school, all I wanna do is hang out with my friends. So I'm like, cool, so I go park my bike, 
and I go next door and um, my best friend and a couple of my other friends are sitting in his bedroom. They're just kind of sitting around and they invite me in and it seemed like they really were excited for me to be there. They're like, hey, you know, come on in. So I came in and I'm like, sweet, we're hanging out and all of a sudden they start talking trash about this one kid. You know, the, you know the one kid? There's always the one kid. It's the kid that could beat up everybody and he knew it. He's like a foot taller than everybody and his, his hobby was beating up other kids. You know, that kid. They just start talking trash about this kid. Just like, he's this and he's stupid and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just this, you know, I'm just this dumb, you know, 14 year old. I'm like, yeah, hate that guy. What an idiot. What a jerk. He can't play basketball, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just totally just talking trash about him. And about three seconds later, he pops out of the closet. They totally set me up. My best friend at the time, it totally set me up because he wanted to see a fight. I just remember being so crushed by that, like being so hurt by that. Wanting so bad to be accepted by my friends and no matter what I did, no matter how much I would try to know them and to be known by them, I just still felt like it wasn't enough. And then this crazy thing happened. I went to this Christian youth group. I got on this bus. This bus would roll into town every Wednesday night and a bunch of my friends, a bunch of my stoner friends would get on the bus and they'd go to this youth group. And I was a church kid. I grew up in church. I knew church, but, but this, was, this was an entirely different thing. And I got on the bus one day and I went to youth group and I just started to notice this is crazy thing. It's like everybody just loved me. And it wasn't because I was cool or didn't do, it wasn't because I did the right things. It was just like they were willing and able to accept me into this relationship that I'd been longing for. It was the craziest thing. It was something totally different about that group of people. The reality that I found, you guys, is that as human beings, we have to have relationship. But the reality is that there is no true human relationship outside of the, the relationship that Christ has created within himself and within the church. That's the reality that I found. This morning, we're gonna talk about relationship. Uh, we're gonna talk about the genesis of relationship. Uh, genesis is the book of beginnings. We've looked at the beginning of, of a lot of things. We've looked at the beginning of the, the cosmos, time, space, matter. We've looked at the beginning of rest. We've looked at the beginning of work. Um, all of these things, Genesis is the book of those beginnings. But what we're gonna look at this morning is actually the beginning of human relationship. It's the genesis of when humans started to interact. Uh, and, it, and it's so interesting because we get to see it before sin entered in the story. You get to see it before sin tainted it, before sin broke it. You know, all you, all you really know of relationships with other humans is tainted by sin. You've, you've never known relationship without sin. What we're gonna look at this morning in Genesis 2 is the first relationship with humans, and it's not tainted by sin. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, let me get you into the timeline a little bit here as we open up the passage. Uh, you need to understand something, and that is that Genesis chapter one, God basically gives an overview of his creative work, days one through seven. And then when you get to Genesis chapter two, this kind of weird thing happens where the author actually steps back and then he double clicks on some of the events that he's already explained. And it's as though he wants the author, or pardon me, he wants the audience to really take some time to understand a few things that happened during the creation narrative. So end of chapter one, he says, behold, it is finished. He rests, done. Man, woman created all of it. But then chapter two, all of a sudden, he starts talking again about a few particular things. He talks about the garden a little bit more. He talks about work a little bit more. He talks about this, this choice that God has now given between evil and life, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And one of the things that he wants the audience to hone in on, he wants to double click on, he wants our attention to be on, is the way in which God instituted human relationship. He wants us to focus on it. And so that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna take a look at it. The passage outlines really simple. Okay, and I stole this from James Boyce. I thought it was helpful. It, it basically, the passage, if, 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 you, if you break it, it breaks into two pieces. First, God prepares Adam for Eve. If you want to write it down, God prepares Adam for Eve in verse 18 to 20. And then secondly, God prepares Eve for Adam. So first, God prepares Adam for Eve. Let's just walk through the passage together. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, just stop right there. If you're sitting down and reading this in one setting, 
you would notice, it would stand out to you like a, like, like a sore thumb that God has said over and over again, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. In fact, he says it seven times, the completion of which on the seventh day, or on the sixth day, pardon me, he says, when it was all done, behold, it is very good. But here, all of a sudden, we get something new. Here, God says, it is not good. There's something not good here. Well, what is it? Okay, what it is is that man should be alone. It's not good that man should be alone. I want you to notice that God is the one pronouncing this. It's not as though Adam was in the garden, you know, and, and he starts walking around and he goes, hey, hey, hey God, can I, get some, can I get a friend or something down here? Like, like that, Adam doesn't do that. Adam doesn't notice. Adam doesn't recognize. God is the one that pronounces publicly to the world, it is not good that man should be alone. Okay, he's the one that declares it. Not good, one commentator says, or uh, yeah, not good, is not only the absence of something good, but a substantial deficiency. So God's point here is that humans literally are not fully humans when they're alone. It's not good for humans to be alone. God didn't make us to be that way. What that means is that when God put Adam in the garden in the first place, he had every intention of creating Eve. The question we need to ask ourselves is, why didn't he just do it at the same time? Like, why did he create Adam and then later create Eve? And I think the answer is because God was preparing Adam for Eve. He, he wanted Adam to be fully aware of who this other person was that God placed into the garden. He wanted Adam to understand that he couldn't carry out his job of imaging the father unless he had someone to do it with. You remember in Genesis 1, God created man and woman in his image, right? God's purpose in creating humans was to image himself. It was to reflect himself. But our God is a community, is he not? Our, our God is a multiplicity. He is a trinity. He is three in one, one God and three persons. And so if you think about it, really, it's not possible to image God unless you have more than one character. So, so Adam really isn't even able to fully image God until he is given someone. Verse 19 now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, you gotta stop and ask, why did God pronounce in verse 18 that it's not good for man to be alone? Say that he's gonna make a helper and then tell Adam, now go and name all the animals before I do that. There's a gap there. And I think the answer to that is that God wants Adam to see something. So Adam's there, he's naming the animals one after the other, and as he's naming the animals, he's recognizing that these animals are amazing and they're, they're creative and, and they're an expression of God's creative design, but they aren't like me. They're not fit for me. They're not, they're not somebody that I can yoke with. They're not somebody that I can partner with. They, they have similarities to me, he would notice. They have a heartbeat, they have lungs, they have feet or whatever, but they don't have a soul. They don't image God in the same way. They don't possess the spirit of God in the same way. So God puts Adam in this place where he, 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 he sees the absence of someone like him. You know, it's not that Adam was alone, by the way. He wasn't alone. He had all the animals. He also had God. Jesus himself, I believe, walking in the cool of the garden with, so you could say, you know, Adam wasn't alone. He had plenty of people around. Adam was alone in the sense that he was the only human. There wasn't anybody like him. He, he longed for somebody like him, you know, and don't we do that? Don't we just have that nature? We want, we want to find somebody like us. We want to find somebody that we can connect with, somebody that we can relate with. So God puts Adam in this place where he's, he's called to see all of the people that are not like him. And then verse 21, or actually verse 18, I know we already looked at that, but I want you to see what God does. God prepares something for him. He makes a helper, notice it, verse 18, he makes a helper fit for him. That is the definition of what a woman is in Genesis 2, a helper fit for him. Adam. In other words, he creates one like him. He creates one that's substantial for him, complementary for him, and he calls her a helper. Now, I need to stop right here, and I just need to ask the question and wrestle with you guys really quick. What does helper mean? 
And what does helper not mean? Okay, so if, if Eve is a helper, well, we better define that. Okay, let me tell you, first of all, what helper does not mean. Helper does not mean someone that is to be under the foot of Adam. Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, that she is to be his servant, that is, she is to be his inferior, that she is to be an accessory or a sexual object or just a tool for procreation. That's not the idea of helper. That's an understatement. In fact, the word helper is the same word that God uses it to describe himself when he says that he is the helper to Israel. In fact, Jesus said that the helper, which is the Holy Spirit, would come and be the, 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 the animating force of the church. So helper is not a pejorative term. Helper is not a demeaning term. Helper doesn't mean that, that she is less in value in any way. Helper doesn't mean that she's under his feet. But listen, helper also doesn't mean that she's over his head either. Okay, helper doesn't mean that, that she's over his head. There's a clear declaration of headship here, even before the fall. Now, a lot of people theologically, they will say, okay, this whole idea of roles and headship and leadership within a marriage, that's all really just because of sin. And, and really, if you go back to Genesis 2, the idea of helper is that they're interchangeable. And so the way that that flushes itself out is, is people will say in what's called egalitarianism is that, hey, you know, um, the woman can be the head in the relationship if she just happens to be more aggressive, if she just happens to be more outspoken, if she just happens to be more the, what we would consider the leadership faculties, okay? Um, that's wrong. That's wrong. The man is the head before sin even enters the picture. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean he's more valuable, it means, listen, it means the buck stops with him. Okay, so let's just say that there was a, 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 a financial scandal here at Philippi. And the IRS calls and says, hey, you know, you guys are, are, are doing your finances in such a way um, that is, is actually breaking the nonprofit code or whatever. Um, okay, so who are they going to call? Are they going to call Levi? They're not going to call Ghostbusters. Who are they going to call? They're going to call me. Why aren't they going to call Levi? Aren't we equal? Aren't we just as important as each other? Um, yes, okay. Um, he's probably a little buffer than me, a little deeper voice, okay. He could probably shoot a bow better. doesn't matter. Our value is not connected to that. Our role distinction doesn't change our value. The reason they're going to call me is because I am the figurehead of the church. So I'm the person that's in charge of and responsible for. So when Eve sins and pulls Adam into that sin, who does God come looking for? Adam. Why? Because he ultimately is responsible. So that, that's what headship means. So it's not that she's under his feet. It's not that she's over his head. And it's not that their roles or genders are interchangeable. Okay, it, it, there is a difference in their roles. It's not related to their value, but it is related to how they function. Now, why am I getting into all this? Because this is under attack in our culture. And some of you right now might even want to punch me in the face for even mentioning the fact that there's such a thing as male headship. Okay, but the reality is, is, is just be, here's the problem, okay? The problem is, is that we equate authority with value, and that's not true. Just because someone's in charge doesn't mean they're more value. Just because ultimately I am the one responsible for leading my wife doesn't make me more valuable. And we've made that the case. In the Godhead, Christ submits to the Father. Does that make him less valuable than the Father? Of course not. Of course not. All three persons of the Trinity are equally valuable, but they have roles. And to diminish those roles, to change those roles is destructive. So that's not what, had, what helpful or what helper means, but what does helper mean? Helper, first of all, means that she is absolutely necessary. There is no fulfilling the cultural mandate. There is no building the kingdom. There is no gardening the garden. There is no building the world that God has intended without the help of man. He is only half of what is needed. And to, to, to denigrate that to just being a reproductive thing is foolish. Adam needed Eve, amen? He needed her, man. I, I tell you what, I, I think about myself, I think about my friends, what we were like before we met our wives, and I just go, man, women can often have the ability to bring out the best 
in men. And there, there, there is so much that my wife possesses that I simply don't have. There's so much that I need from her. And that's not just in marriage. I'm just talking about literally culture in general. That we are smart, we are wise to capitalize on the differences of men and women. We are smart to capitalize on the fact that women understand and think about things differently than we do. They make up the areas that we lack in. So what, head, what help, helper means is a partnership. It is a missional partnership. A complementary partnership, which is, by the way, what I believe and what we claim here as a church is that we are complementarian. Complementarianism believes that men and women are equal but distinct in roles. And we need to function within those roles. And for us to be a healthy church, we need to function within that. We need, for us to be a healthy church, there needs to be a place for both men and women to use their gifts and their distinctions. And, and if I'm a good leader, then I'm gonna look at each of you and go, each of you are different. How can each of you be used differently by God? Okay, let's move on. We also learn now, or pardon me, so God has prepared Adam for Eve. Now God is preparing Eve for Adam. He calls her a helper. And then in verse 21, we learn how God makes her in specific. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man because he didn't want him screwing it up. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, now this is so cool. I was just thinking about this this morning. I was reading Genesis 1 through 3, and I was just noticing how God is always the initiating party. It's so cool. You know, God is the one to recognize that it's not good for man to be alone. God is the one to fashion the woman and bring her, the bride, like a father down the aisle to the groom. And in Genesis 3, when they blow it and sin comes into the world and, and uh, the, the curse begins and man and woman discover their nakedness, God is the one to come clothe them. He is the gracious one who, who comes in and makes provision. So he is providing. You know, you ever think about a wedding and think about all the pieces of it? It's not just random. Why does the father walk his, his daughter down the aisle? It's a picture. It's a reminder of the fact that God, the father, created a bride for his son Adam and walked her down the aisle. He presented her to him. Why does the, the, the father and the mother say, we give this this, this woman to, to be with him? Or who gives permission? Well, where did that come from? Well, the fact that the Bible says marriage is leaving your father and mother. It's all here. It's the first wedding. It's amazing. God takes the woman out of a rib. He takes man out of the dirt. Why? Well, it's because guys are most closely related to animals because he says the animals were made out of dirt. So we're, we're basically animals and we like to play in the dirt. That's basically it, right? No, this is more than that. God takes Eve out of the man because, have you ever noticed that men are typically drawn to the material creative things of this world? We want to go work, we want to go conquer, we want to go build, whether that's iPhones, or rocket ships, or log cabins, whatever, we want to go conquer, we are drawn to the material building of things. Women are often drawn to the relational building of things. No, not always, but most of the time. Women tend to, if you look at the, look at the genre distinctions, okay? Chick flicks oftentimes are relational. Guy movies are what? Blood, guts, war, building things, conquering things. Why? Because man is built from the dirt. Woman is built from man. Woman is taken from part of the man. Highly relational. Her place is within the relational context, Okay, now what's this deal with the rib? What's, what, what's going on with the rib there? Some commentators think that rib literally means half, which basically means that God took half of Adam and fashioned it into Eve. So she's kind of like part Adam, part something different, which I think there's some truth to that. You know, you're way more alike with your spouse or with a, a female, a person of the opposite sex. You're way more alike than you are different. We always emphasize the differences but in many ways, you're very much alike. You have a lot in common, a lot of similarities. God wanted Eve to be like him, and that's what he needed. That's what he was longing for. He was longing for someone like him, so God takes some part of him, and he fashions Eve into that. Sorry, I lost my place. Yeah, rib. 
Thank you. It's preaching two times thing, man. My brain's like fried by the time I get the second one. Ready for that to be done. Uh, anyways, what's with the rib? Okay, so uh, verse 23, God gives Adam the honor of naming his bride. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So you have to read this with the right inflection. Okay, Adam has been sitting here naming animal after animal, realizing that he's alone, realizing he doesn't have anybody like him. And then all of the sudden, God brings the bride down the aisle and he goes, at last, somebody like me. At last, somebody I can share life with. Somebody I can share things with. Somebody that understands me. Somebody that can partner with me. He's stoked. God gives him the privilege of naming the woman. I like this C.S. Lewis quote. He says, friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what you two thought no one, no one but myself. And in other words, it's, it's, friendship is born when you go, oh, we have this thing in common. I mean, you never notice that? You're always looking for that commonality. You know, you're, somebody's cutting your hair and, and you're like, oh, where are you from? Oh, I had a grandma that used to live there and blah, blah, blah. Like, what are you doing in that moment? You're searching for this commonality because as a human, it's basic for you to search for commonality. And as relationships grow, you start to share more and more and more in common, more experiences, more inside jokes, more things. What, what's happening here is that God is bringing the commonality to Adam. He's going, oh, she's like me. She's like me, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He gets to name her. And then 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The reason he writes, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother is specifically for clingy mother-in-laws, by the way. He knew that that was gonna be an issue, so he put it into the Bible. Here we see God creating marriage, instituting marriage. So when we define marriage, when we say what is a marriage biblically, what do we do? Well, what you do says a lot about your worldview. If you say, well, you know what? I feel like marrying someone of the same sex. I feel like marrying multiple partners. I feel like I don't even need to get married. I can just live together. Okay, uh, that's fine. So you're basing ultimate reality off of what you've seen to supposedly be true based on your limited, finite experiences. Okay, let's see how that works out. What Christians do, what Christians are called to do is we're called to look at Genesis 2 and go, oh, marriage isn't like art. It's not something I can paint and decide and create. Marriage is a thing. It's like archaeology. It's like science. It's something God designed, and it's our job to dig it up and figure out what it is. Okay, it's a reality that God created. And because it's a reality he created, we have to figure out what the rules are that he created into it. And you know what, you know what the rules are? One man, one woman, bond that cannot be broken. That's the rules. One flesh. Okay, now sin enters the picture and divorce happens and there's hurt and there's betrayal and there's infidelity and all those things. But, but Genesis 2, God's original design, God's intended design for marriage, God's sinless design for marriage is one man, one woman, one flesh. Leave, cleave. That's the original design. God designed it. We don't get to mess with the parts. You know, we're, we're having a culture war right now in our country. We're having a culture war because half of our country goes, you know, we actually let this thing decide what a marriage is. And the other half of our culture says, no, we don't really care what that thing says about marriage. We believe our experience is more real than what God's word says. Now, as Christians, we go, uh, no, we're gonna go with what God said because he made it. He created a marriage. He knows what a marriage is, and a marriage is defined for us. Now, what do we do with all that? What do we do with all that? I wanna get really practical here with you for the rest of our time, and, and I wanna kind of unpack the, the parts, the facets, if you will, of a healthy relationship. Now, I understand that not everybody in here is married, and I wanna be sensitive to that, and I want you to understand, and this is really important, so listen, okay? God wants you in a intimate, transparent, trusting, deep relationship with humans regardless of whether you're married or not, okay? That's God's plan for you. It is not good that you be alone. 
He wants you in relationship. He wants you in meaningful relationships, lasting relationships, trusting, covenant, transparent relationships, relationships that go deep, relationships that rub off edges, that cause friction. He wants you in that whether you're married or not. If you're married, you're in luck because that's a lot easier to find. You got someone sleeping right next to you every night. But regardless of whether you're married, as a Christian, God wants you to see the importance of deep covenant human relationships, okay? That's, if you take away one thing, I want you to see and feel the importance of pursuing that. And then I wanna give you the tools to, to understand how to pursue that, okay? So we're gonna look at four things, four tenets of a healthy human relationship. So if you're a note taker, you can jot them down. I'll have them up on the screen for you. Four tenets of a healthy human relationship. I'm going to try to make this as practical as possible because I want to give you the tools to understand how to make relationships actually true human relationships. Not like the relationships in high school that you've pursued where literally uh, no matter what you did, uh, they just made fun of you. Okay, I'm talking about real human relationships And I want you to see, and I didn't just do this to be cute, I put the word gospel in front of each of these points because literally the gospel is the only way that these things happen, okay? So four tenets of a healthy human relationship. All of them are in our text. Basically gonna rethread the needle here and take a second look. So number one, your relationship has to have a healthy gospel missiology. Some of you guys are going, what the heck is a missiology? Okay, missiology is the study of mission. Okay, so up here we know we're, we, from the, from the pulpit, we're doing theology. I mean, we're talking about theology, which is the study of God. You have ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. Um, there's all kinds of ologies, right? But missiology is the study of mission. And what I would, I would introduce to you is that having a healthy missiology in a relationship is one of the most important things that you can do. Whether it's a marriage relationship, a church relationship, a friend relationship, you need to have a healthy missiology. Now, a truly satisfying, flourishing, authentic human relationship cannot be an end in and of itself, One of the fastest ways to destroy a relationship is to make the relationship the point of the relationship. Are you with me? And they all start that way, and that's okay. Most relationships start because there's some kind of an intrinsic pleasure. There's some kind of an intrinsic joy. So maybe you have a common interest with somebody, or if it's a romantic relationship, you go, man, I really like this person. They just are fun to be with, and they make me feel good, and they make me happy. So I'm gonna enter into a relationship. But the problem is, is, is by nature, when you start a relationship, you're getting into it for yourself. The relationship itself is what you're after. Now that's fine at first, but it will not last. Because see, the pleasure and the joy oftentimes starts to wear off. And as it starts to wear off, you start to go, well, wait a minute. I got in this thing to be happy and this thing isn't making me happy anymore. It's the number one reason I hear for divorce. This isn't making me happy anymore. Okay, and you have to stop and say, well, then why did you do it in the first place? What was the purpose? What was the intended purpose of the relationship? When you step onto a football field and you play a game, there is an agreed-upon set of, of rules. And, and, if, and if the agreed-upon set of rules isn't clearly understood, then people are going to be playing the game all wrong. When you get married, it's important that you understand, hey, there's an agreed-upon set of rules, and, and the rules are for the Christian that the marriage doesn't exist for the marriage. The marriage exists for something else. I want you to see this. God doesn't create a sustainer. He creates what? A helper. What does that imply about the purpose of Eve? It's not good for man to be alone because man is on a mission and man is not as effective and is not productive on a mission alone. God created Adam not just so that he could be existing. He didn't just create him existentially. He created him for a purpose. He said, I'm gonna put you in the garden. I want you to garden the garden. I want you to make lots of babies. I want you to fill the earth. I want you to glorify me. Adam was on a mission. He said, I need to outfit you with a helper for that mission. I don't want you to do it alone. When you get married or when you enter into a relationship, you have to see that relationship as being for a purpose, a mission bigger than simply the relationship itself. It is a partnership for a purpose. Feelings can start it, but they can't sustain it. What happens is you get into the relationship for the joy of the relationship, but what you idolize, you eventually demonize, right? 
So you used to, th- you used to think that person made you happy, but now that they don't make you happy, you loathe that person. And that's what happens. If you want a healthy relationship, that relationship has to be ultimately rooted and grounded in mission. I was thinking about this this week. I thought, you know, there's a common theme with all of my best friends. There's a common thing with all my best friends. Um, friends that, the friendships that have stood the test of time, that have gone through years and years and years. And, and, and I have lots of things in common with some of my best friends. And we'll be like, but, but that's not what's kept us together through the years. The thing that's kept us together is we're on the same mission. We serve the same king. We have the same purpose in our existence. And we serve Jesus together. And I actually thought about it. I'm like, man, I actually serve with all of my best friends. <laughs> How crazy is that? Two of them are on our elder board. Two of them serve here in the church. It's crazy. And then I thought about my wife, which is my best friend, really is truly my best friend. I thought, you know, what makes my wife and I's relationship work so well? We're on mission together. We're not spending all of our energy trying to figure out how to to maximize the joy of enjoying each other all the time. We're not just like sitting around thinking about how we can increase all the romance in our life. We're on mission. We're doing things for Jesus together. That is what's kept us close. We got this foster baby a month ago or five weeks ago, and, and by all accounts, it doesn't make sense. He's been taking attention away from each other. It's made it to where it, it, we, we can hardly get a date night or we can hardly see each other. We can hard, but you know what's so crazy is my wife and I's relationship has gotten closer. Why? Because we're on mission together. We're doing something together. This was how God designed you. He designed relationships to thrive in partnership for mission. Now, I'd encourage you guys, seriously, I would encourage you guys, if your marriage or your friendships or your relationship is feeling strained, it's feeling dead, it's feeling lifeless, it's feeling like it's not going anywhere, stop and think about it. What am I doing intentionally, missionally with that person for Jesus? You know, for everyone's first go-to when you say you're having marital problems is like, well, are you taking a date night? That's important, date nights are good, but I would say that's actually not the main reason most marriages aren't doing well. The reason is they're not on mission together. And you gotta wrestle with the question, what is that mission? Maybe some of you guys are asking that. Well, what is the mission? What do we do? I'll give you some advice on that. First of all, think about what you know. What do you know to do? What do you know from the scripture that you're called to do? Do it with your spouse. Do it with your friend. Do it with your relationship. What are we called to do? Make disciples. How can you do that together? What would it look like to orbit your life around God's mission? Well, what do you love? What do you love to do? What are you passionate about? What are, where, where does your passions and your, your excitements intersect? Or is there something that you're both excited about? And I'll just say this too. There may be a point where you're not excited about something. They are, and you just have to trust that God's gonna give you an excitement for that thing. My wife wasn't super crazy about playing a church at first. She trusted me, and God has given her a heart for this. I wasn't super crazy about foster care at first. I trusted that God was doing work in her and now it's become a mutual partnership, a mutual mission that we're doing together and it binds us together. It's the gas in the car. So I encourage you guys. And, and, and when you think about church, if church feels dissatisfying to you, it's because you're thinking about it wrong. You're thinking about it like a consumer good when you should be thinking about it like a partnership. I'm coming here to serve Jesus. Who do I want to serve Jesus with? You know, when people tell me, hey, Sam, you know, I'm leaving the church. Uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. I say, great, that's fine. I say, where are you going to go? And they're like, well, I don't know. We're trying different churches. And I say, well, what do you think? How's it going? What do you like? Well, these guys, the music, blah, blah, blah. Well, these guys, the preaching, blah, blah, blah. Well, these guys, the chairs, blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh, okay, okay. Um, and I just say, just do me one favor. You can leave Philippi. That's fine. We send you with our blessing. But just do one thing for me. Go somewhere where you believe in the mission. Go somewhere where you believe in what they're doing and then pull a yoke with them. Don't go somewhere because you like this X, Y, and Z better than you did here. And so I I challenge people. I say, oh, cool, what's the mission of the church? I don't really know. Why are you going there? I don't know. We like the people. Okay, well, that's fine. You know, that's fine. But, But mission is what keeps relationships abiding. Your deepest relationships share the deepest partnerships. Amen? Do I need to keep beating the dead horse? You guys get it? Okay. Second point. Your relationship needs gospel security. Gospel security. I'm convinced that our generation is the least relationally healthy generation that has ever lived. Would you agree? I know it sounds like an overstatement. Like, dude, whatever. There's probably been more relationally unhealthy. No, I don't think so. And here's why I think I can say that. 
Because never before in the face of the earth have we ever had a easier and more accessible way to break relationship. It's a click away, man. And not only is it a click away, finding new humans that will accept us because they don't really know us and they don't know our flaws yet is a click away. We could just always find new people. You know, there used to be a time where you lived in some podunk little village and you didn't have the internet and if your village thought you were a jerk, you had to live with that. Now, if your village thinks you're a jerk, you just get on social media and find a new group. I mean, you just move. You just, it's so easy to break relationship now. There is no social cost. There's no social or geographical constraint anymore. But what do we see in the first relationship? What do we see in the genesis of relationship? God says, particularly with a marriage, you are one flesh. I want you to grab your arm really quick and just pull it off. Can you just rip your arm off really quick? Can you do that for me? Would somebody just, would you be willing to do that? Dude, if someone had a fake arm right now, that would be the best. Oh, that'd be so funny. Okay, why won't you just rip your arm off? Why? Why don't you just do it? Why, why don't you rip your arm off? Anybody? It, it what? It pain? Yeah, it hurts. It's not natural. You need it? That's a good point. Why else? Why don't you rip your arm off? It's part of you. It's, it's, it's something that's not obviously, clearly not meant to be severed. This is the imagery that God said when he talks about covenant relationship. One flesh. One. I mean, those of you that have been married a while, you know, when your wife hurts, you hurt. You feel it. I'd rather me be sick than her. It hurts more to watch her be sick than it is for me. Why? Because we're one flesh. That's covenant relationship. God designed relationships to be united, to be secure. And listen, they don't grow unless they are. The problem in our culture is the reason we're so relationally dysfunctional, the reason, is, reason we're so shallow is because we never stick around. Divorce is one filling out of a form away, especially in Oregon, right? New friends are one click away. New church is one drive down the block away. There is just no sticking around. And for that reason, we have actually crippled our emotional capacity to have deep and lasting relationships. I wonder sometimes if any of us really have ever even experienced real relationships. We've been doing life with this group now for a few years and we've been through some stuff, man. Like we've fought, we've had some arguments, we've had some awkward things, we've had things where we literally had to be like, we gotta talk through this. And man, I'll tell you what, there's been multiple times where it, it would have just been easier in some ways to just be like, peace, let's go find a new small group. Let's go find some new friends. I used to be the guy that managed the small groups at my last church. And I'll tell you what, everybody does that. They're just like, forget this church, forget this group, I'm gonna find a new one. But we stuck in there. And it was so cool, we were meeting last week and I was praying, we were praying for each other, and I was just like, every, we went around the room and all shared what was going on, and man, everybody was just so honest. Like, man, this is what's going on in our marriage, this is what we did, this is what we're struggling with, blah, blah, blah. And as I was praying, I was just thinking, wow, this is real relationship. These guys know me, they know my junk, they know my garbage, they know my anger, they know my sin, they've had to forgive me, I've had to forgive them, we know each other, and why has that worked? It worked just because we stuck around. If I had left, it would have been all the way back to ground zero. Start over. Start fresh. Jesus said something profound. He said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. What that means is, is that when you invest in something, you will learn to love it. What if I told you that you were gonna be locked in a cabin for the rest of your life with one person? Okay? No getting out of it, man. You can't kill him. They can't kill you. You're stuck in the cabin for the rest of your life with one person. And you knew that was the reality. There's no getting out of it. I will guarantee one thing to you. You would learn how to live with that person because to not live with that person would be to your own detriment. When God created a marriage, and when God created marriage, he, he meant to do so in such a way that says, hey, you're one flesh. Figure it out. Work through it. We cripple our relationships when we don't create a space of safety. We cripple our relationships when we don't have commitment. How do we do that? How do we create 
gospel security in our relationships. Let me just give you some practical advice. Number one, invest. Okay, invest. Um, you know, when you're planning on leaving some point, you're very, you don't, you don't think long-term in your investments. Like, like, like if I knew I was gonna go work at a different church in two months, I'd probably be thinking totally differently. But I plan on being here forever. So it's like, I'm thinking, like whatever I do now, I'm gonna have to deal with later. Okay, think about relationships that way. Think about, invest in them, pour yourself into them, and then you'll be more likely to stick around. Secondly, I would say, just rule out. If you're married, just rule out the idea of divorce. The word divorce shouldn't even come out of the mouth. Just rule it out. It's not something God created. Just like ripping your arm off. You don't understand the cost. Some of you do. You don't understand the cost that it will have on you to rip your arm off. It is not natural. The most important thing in order to have gospel security is you need to believe that God is committed to you. And until you see God's faithful, unwavering, unflinching commitment to you, you will never be able to have that for somebody else. You know, it, it's, it's something that has to be received before it can be given. Number three, gospel serenity. Gospel serenity, I want you to see this. And one of the main things that I deal with in marital counseling is one person in the marriage has an idea of what the other person in the marriage should be like. And they're trying to make that person like that. And every once in a while, I just have to stop. And so, hey guys, look. Genesis chapter two. What does God do when he makes a bride for Adam? He puts him to sleep. Why does he put him to sleep? Because he wants Adam to understand that it's not Adam's job to make his bride. It's not his job. Whose job is it? It's God's job. There's something you need to hear this in here, okay? It is not your job to create your spouse or your friend or your partner in business or whatever it is in the image that you desire. It's God's job. It's God's job. What would it look like in your relationship if you chose to stay within your circle of influence? If you chose to say, I'm gonna affect the things that I can control. I'm gonna change the things about myself that need to be changed rather than constantly looking at them and saying, hey, you need to change this. You need to change that. You need to change this. I'm gonna look at what's going on in my life and what I can control. I'm gonna see my own sin. I'm gonna repent of my own sin and I'm gonna let God deal with you. Guys, listen. You are not your spouse's mommy. You're not. You're not, husbands, you're not your wife's boss. It's, it's like we've got to stop controlling each other and like, look, God will do this. Who do you go to? Who do you run to when you want to see change? You run to the Lord. He is the one that creates Eve. It's investment without entitlement. It's partnership, not ownership. And lastly, number four, and most importantly, so tune in here if you guys have been taking it out. Lastly and most importantly, I want you to see the importance of gospel transparency. Gospel missiology, security, serenity, and lastly, <coughs> transparency. There's two words in our text that you need to really, really need to know, and I, and I didn't dig into them because I wanted to flush them out right here. Okay, there's two words in verse 25 that summarize the true sign of a healthy human relationship. And don't giggle, okay, because it's not junior high. Okay, uh, naked and unashamed. Those are the two words that God uses to describe the essence of a perfect human relationship. If you're wondering, how do I know if a relationship is healthy or not? Well, think about these two words, naked and unashamed. Okay, and, and naked here has nothing to do with sexuality. And every pastor always makes that joke, you know, oh yeah, Eve, she's naked, whatever. That's not the point. It's not about sexuality. It's about being known. It's about the fact that Adam and Eve were in a place of relationship where there was no need to hide anything. Can you imagine that? There was no need to hedge your bets, no need to massage the way that your image is perceived. You know, one of the things that clothes, clothes do for us is they, they kind of give us the ability to sort of change our appearance. You know, that shirt makes me look fat. Now, that shirt makes me look good, you know? I mean, this, this thing helps me do this. This, help, this thing helps me do that. The idea of nakedness is that this is who I am. There's no hiding. There's no changing. This is the reality. But it's not just nakedness. It's 
being unashamed, which means not only is this who I am, I'm okay with it. And our culture wants this really bad. You know, the secular worldly culture, they want this really bad. And you know what they think the answer to it is? You just need to love yourself. You just need to accept yourself. Yeah, I mean, you do wrong things, but don't we all do wrong things? Just, just believe in yourself. See your inner value. Understand who you really are. Bull crap. Can I say that? Okay, thank you. It's bull. It's not true. That's not the way to true relational intimacy. It's not about you loving yourself. It's about you admitting your sin. Here's the thing I need to understand, okay? One of the reasons that relationships don't work is because of sin. What sin does is it causes us to hide. There's something called the shame cycle. I want you to understand this. The shame cycle, shame cycle, the shame cycle, can you guys accept me for who I am, please? Thank you. Just being transparent, okay? Yeah. Um, the sin cycle, or the shame cycle, starts with sin, okay? Sin uh, is something we all have, and because we all have it and we're all aware of it, uh, we know that it's ugly, and we know that it's like bad breath. We know that it's something we don't want anyone to smell. We don't want to see. So what we do naturally because of sin is we hide it. Okay, so sin leads to shame. Shame is I don't want anyone to see my sin. And shame leads to hiding. And we do that. We you enter into a relationship. Everybody likes each other at first because you don't know each other yet. Every, every, you know, every, I love doing premarital. It's so easy. Oh, we just love him. He can never do anything. I'm like, Bleh. Can't wait to talk to you guys in five years. This is going to be great. Okay, the, the reality is, is you, you like each other because you don't know each other. And then you start to be known, whether you like it or not. Marriage has a way of the truth comes out, okay? You start to be known. And as you are known, then you have this tendency to realize, wow, when I'm known, my sin is ugly. So I'm going to hide that sin because it's shameful. And by hiding it, that creates distrust, which creates a place where you want to sin more. It's this toxic shame cycle. So sin leads to shame, leads to hiding, leads to distrust, leads to more sin. And it just continues and it continues and it continues. And, and if you're broken relationship after broken relationship after broken relationship, the more broken relationships have, the more you realize, well, I'm not gonna let anybody into who I am because every time I let them into who I am, they just judge me, they don't love me, they don't accept me. So the world says the answer to that is just to be in love with yourself. Problem is, Yourself is a wretched sinner, and you know it. If you didn't know it, you wouldn't hide the things that you think and say that you know you shouldn't think and say, the things that are disgusting, the things that you don't want anyone to know. So loving yourself, accepting yourself, that's fake. That's not true. Listen, only the gospel can break the shame cycle. Why? Because the gospel comes in from the outside of the shame cycle. And instead of sin, it replaces it with wholeness. See, what God does in the gospel is he comes into the individual and he says, this thing that you're hiding, this thing that you're scared of anyone knowing about, this thing that, that you know is putrid, this thing that you know you have to bury deep down, I'm gonna take that thing and I'm gonna pay the penalty for it. I'm going to love you anyways, God says. I'm gonna accept you as you are, but then I'm gonna transform you. you. You receive wholeness, and when you receive wholeness, a whole new cycle starts. You ready for this? A whole new cycle starts. Instead of a shame cycle, your wholeness leads to acceptance. I feel accepted. I don't need to, I don't need to be okay with my sin. I'm okay with my righteousness. I'm okay with the fact that God loves me even in my sin. He's the only one that has the capability to do that. So because I'm whole, now I'm accepted. And because I'm accepted, now I'm, listen, honest. I can be honest. I can be honest about my shortcomings. I can be honest and transparent about my sin. Why? Because it's forgiven. Because it's been paid for. Because God has inserted righteousness into my shame cycle. And because now I can be transparent, that leads to security, which leads to more wholeness. Your shame cycle will never break. And you will never have true relational intimacy until you have allowed the gospel to infiltrate the stuff in your life that you don't want anyone to see. God's grace has to permeate that place in your life. It's an amazing thing. I've seen it happen so many times. A man and a woman in a relationship, 
the, the, the relationship feels so toxic. I could never forgive him for that. I could never forgive her for that. The things he said, the things she's done, the things she said, I never, I can never do it. And, and, and so they start to separate into their own silos and they start to live their own lives and they start to hide things and they start to have infidelity and all this stuff. It's just the natural course of it. And then the gospel comes into the picture and one of the two goes, oh, wait a minute. I can be honest about my shortcomings because I'm forgiven. And be, and not only can I be honest about my shortcomings, I can be honest about my shortcomings to my spouse. And not only can I be honest about my shortcomings to my spouse, I can forgive my spouse's shortcomings because there is grace enough for her or him. There's grace enough for me and for her. And it's the craziest thing. What, wait a minute, you, you're okay with my sin? You, you, you're okay? Yeah, because God has dealt with my sin. And the gospel begins to start this whole new cycle. My point is just simply this, is that relationship is only relationship when it is truly open and truly transparent. Now, your ultimate relationship is God, of course. But if you want to have true and authentic human relationships, you have to be known and you have to know. And the only way you're ever going to trust anyone with who you truly are is if you have first trusted your sin to God. If you have first allowed him to accept and deal with the stuff in you. Your relationship will never be real until you feel you can be real and you will never feel you can be real until you have really pressed in to the grace of God. When we look at Genesis 2, I don't want you to just see marriage. I want you to see the fact that God's intention all along was for deep, authentic, transparent human relationships and the gospel is the key to that. The gospel is the key to that. God's plan always comes through the conduit of community. So let me just say this by clo- in, in way of closing. Some of you guys are in a place where you are very hesitant to get in any more relationships. Marital relationships, dating relationships, church relationships, friend relationships. You've been hurt, okay? And, and because you've been hurt, you're just, you're ready to clam up. Okay, my invitation for you this morning is to first of all, recognize the words of God that it is not good that you be alone. It is not good. But, but when I say that, that, you need to understand that there's a big difference between proximity and community. Just being around humans is not true community. What God is doing is he's calling, just like he did for me when I was in high school and I got saved when I was 16, he's calling you out of this place of relational dysfunctionality, this place of shame, this place of darkness, this place of hiding, this place of secrecy, and he's calling you into the light that the gospel brings and he's calling you into the intimacy of a Christian community through the brothers and sisters that are around you into a place where you can be known and you can know one another. And it's messy. But being human is being in relationship with humans. Being human is being in relationship with humans. And listen, if you want to be where God is, guess where he is? He's smack dab in the mess of relational problems. That's where he lives. He's in the church with dysfunctional Christians that are fighting. That's where he lives. That's where he likes to be. He likes to be in the mess, working in the mess. So if you want to be where the Lord is, go to where the mess is. And where the mess is is human relationships. That's what you were made for. Watch God redeem and redemptively work. I want to close with this C.S. Lewis quote. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, It will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. The best thing that you could ever do for this church, the best thing you could ever do for yourself, the best thing you could ever do for everyone you're in relationship with is believe the gospel for yourself. It's not about accepting them for who they are. It's about accepting them for what Christ has done for them and inserting his grace and that means stepping into the mess. I just want to encourage you guys, man. Step into the mess. Step into the mess. Remember these four things. 
Gospel missiology. Do you have a sense of mission in your relationships? Gospel security. Do you have covenant relationships that you're faithful to, that you're secure in? Gospel serenity. Have you surrendered the work over to the Lord? And lastly, gospel transparency. Are you known and being known in relationship? Amen? I'm gonna pray, and then I'm actually gonna invite a couple friends up, and we're gonna have uh, just a few minutes of conversation up here. Father, I thank you so much, God, for your word. I thank you for... uh, Dave and Jen, come on up, guys. I thank you so much for um, Genesis 2. I thank you for giving us this template of what human relationships are really supposed to look like. I thank you that it's all made possible now because of Jesus, because, Jesus, you have been the righteousness and the wholeness that we needed to break, break the shame cycle. And, Lord, right now, I know even now, you're wanting to break into the shame cycle in this room. God, I pray that we would have deep, abiding, transparent, secure relationships within this church and that that would start with honesty and forgiveness. Lord, we just invite you to work within the community of our church, God. We pray that our relationships would deepen. I pray for the marriages in this church, God. I know so many marriages right now, Lord, are are strained, Lord, I pray you would bring health and life into those. I I pray for those, Lord, in this room right now that that have have been divorced and feel like, well, what about me? I just pray, God, you would remind them that you work through broken things, that you're you're the relationship they're longing for, that the intimacy with you, Christ, is the relationship they need, that you are always looking to work and to heal and to, to bring restoration. For those in this room that feel like they just have so much relational baggage, they can't trust people, I just pray, God, that they would trust you. And as they trust you and the walls start to come down, that you would just start to heal them, start to work in them, God. We pray for healthy relationships in our church, God, that glorify you, that bring a Genesis 2 reality into a, a Genesis 3 world of brokenness and sin. I pray that we would be that community, Lord, of love that the non-Christians would see and be drawn to, Father. Let me just pray that in Jesus' name.